0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. The podcast that dares to think differently. Mixing interviews with analysis, we investigate contemporary Western Buddhism and evolving 21st century practice and theory. The podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's me a non-guru, down-to-earth approach to engaging practice, change work and growth, particularly suited to those who have become disenchanted with Buddhism, spirituality and the various promises of self-help, personal development and the happiness trap of mindfulness. Check out imperfectbuddha.com for more information on the podcast, the coaching, as well as a blog on post-traditional and non-Buddhist approaches to Buddhism and more. Today we're speaking with, well, something of an old flame at this point. That old flame is Mr. Daniel Ingram. Daniel, thank you for coming back on and uh, making some time to speak with us on the Imperfect Buddha podcast.
0: It's a joy to be here, Matthew, always. Thank You're you right. so much for putting these things on and for helping
1: to bring diverse perspectives to the world. One does try, and uh, thank you for that kind comment. So look, today we're going to be doing things a little bit different in a sense that it will have more of a personal aspect and it will be looking at personal practice and the evolution of practice over the years and other assorted questions. So we'll see what you make of some of them. Listeners should know that I did make a promise to send Daniel out a few questions beforehand and I failed miserably. I don't know, life's very intense these days and very, very busy. Like many folks over here in Italy where I live, many of us have been involved in trying to do something to help out the poor Ukrainians. Uh, We're getting quite a few migrants coming through this city. Some of them are staying, some are moving on. Uh, Quite a few unaccompanied teenagers are are staying with us and ending up at the local schools. So they need a bit of a helping hand. And I'm kind of sharing this because it gives me the excuse to tell listeners, if you feel like doing your bit, please do. There are many ways you can help out. There are some really good people at the various countries bordering on the Ukraine, in particular Poland, who are providing meals and welcoming migrants and trying to save many of them. I'll leave some links in the show notes if you're interested. Okay, that's out the way. Daniel, let's get on to you. Can I start off with a funny question? Are you ready sure. for that? All right. Absolutely, why not? So, look, what do you think would have happened to you if you hadn't started practicing meditation in the way that you did and the way that you do? Wow, that is, that is a hard question, actually. Um, and I, I guess it
0: depends on how far back you go, Mm. right? So I actually started doing things sort of meditative when I was quite young, just sort of naturally. And I think children can be sort of prone to natural, just noticing that if you just focus on your breath, you calm down. For example, I think this is, you know, how people can self learn to self soothe for, um, and then you know I, I did some a little bit of sort of light and meditation in fourth grade and then i started doing based on that some sort of impromptu sort of explorations of dream what you know i would later think of as visualizations and dream yoga but didn't at the time i was just trying to have better flying dreams <laughs> and so i guess it depends on where you want to start it's 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 hard to imagine what what my life would have been like if i hadn't done this Mm. It, it's it's nearly incomprehensible it has defined so many aspects of my life it, it's it's kind of like almost asking me like what my life would have been like if I had different parents well I, like I hardly know where to begin mm. I, I I find it a unfortunately a sort of a disorienting question because literally almost all the major decisions in my life somehow were dramatically impacted you know mm. particularly my teenage to adult life were somehow dramatically impacted by the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have when you ask the same question of yourself what kind of answers are you able to come up with that hopefully is better than (laughs) my
1: incredibly useless one (laughs) i haven't given it much thought either (laughs) which is very bad of me but um again I, i share something in common with you and then some things are obviously different so one thing that i have in common with you is that i had particular experiences when i was young that we might loosely tie into some concept of the spiritual. But for me, meditation wasn't the kind of thing that came naturally. It was more nature connecting to things like the elements. So that's something that that, that just came naturally and seemed to somehow be pre-programmed in me. Although, of course, I'm not allowed to say that kind of thing. So meditation came in my teen years. By whom? By By whom? whom are you not
0: allowed to say that kind of thing? I'm just curious.
1: Oh, by by very clever people that would probably come up with a concept about uh, human identity and the fact that there's no pre-programming, so to speak. We don't have any innate qualities hiding out anywhere or any, I don't know, some kind of uh, proclivity that might resonate with the concept of destiny or innate attraction towards something. I think there are numerous twin studies um, as part of the great
0: feast of research into twins and triplets and things, (laughs) where they've been separated in various ways, that would actually um, have a great deal to say about pushing back against that.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good thing, isn't it? And I'm not saying I have a problem with that. I'm just being slightly facetious. The point that I found interesting in what you said was just the point you made about being a child and children having a kind of almost natural disposition towards exploring what they have as a way of relating to what they're experiencing in your case the breath in my case most likely the pleasant feelings that i got from nature or the sense of almost transcendental shift in awareness that you know i'd get swimming in a lake or climbing nice. trees right but in terms of not doing any of that i've probably got a good answer i probably would have ended up being a criminal That's interesting. And what sort of crimes do you imagine
0: yourself committing? Uh,
1: I don't want to say too much about the dark corners of my difficult years. Oh, all right. But let's just say, yeah, I probably wouldn't have been a very nice person. Yes, there we go. So then then you you
0: found then, obviously, I think of you as quite a nice person now and very helpful, (laughs) kind, considerate member of your family and community and the broader community of this uh world of intellectuals and anti-intellectuals and semi-intellectuals and etc um that that we swirl in and dharma people so that is quite a statement to say that that it was that transformative from criminal to um to world citizen
1: yeah yeah it's it's probably that uh, yeah it's probably that marked I mean, there were other things too, obviously, but at some point I remember quite clearly I had to make a commitment to go one way or the other. And I went, the way I went, and here I am today. <laughs> nice. That is that is a heartwarming story, even as abstract as it is. Uh, yeah, and it shall remain so. All right. Anyway, I like the fact that you managed to pass that back to me, that baton. So I'm going to have to give the baton back to you now. And I'll give you a, an easier question to manage. What was the the first Buddhist book that you picked up and what impact did it have on you? And as a third bit, what are your thoughts about that book today? The first Buddhist book I ever picked up, it kind
0: of depends on where you want to draw the line. Hmm. And I would actually draw the line um, at the Dhamma in general, sort of the teachings that help one um, understand what's going on and avoid suffering and navigate into the territory of insight, there were two books that I would have read, that I did read right about the same time in my life, both of which were quite impactful. And the first um, was The Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Mm Zukov. And it's one of these books, for those who don't know it, that is talking about quantum physics and consciousness and um, the, the nature of mind and how it's a, it's very much like one of these Zen and physics kind of books, mm-hmm. except obviously it's taking something of a Taoist slant on it with the name. And uh, it's, it's just absolutely exquisite in terms of talking about things like determinism and super determinism and impermanence and causality and things related to time and consciousness and measurement. And it, I was never really quite the same again. Hmm. And then the other book, which I read at about that same time, which um, is A Wizard of Earthsea. And this is Ursula K. Le Guin, who I find powerfully insightful and mystical. And it's nearly impossible for me to imagine that she hadn't had some kind of depths of insight to A, write that book and plenty of others she wrote. And just this whole quality of her being in the world, to me, screams I have some understanding uh, that is useful and deep. And to me... That book basically reads just like an insight map. And it described a journey that somehow I had the sense of resonance with. So that's actually where I begin. And I still uh, love both of those books.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, Is that it may not have been the answer you were
1: expecting? Well, you'll be pleased that I have no expectations about answers. (laughs) What what would I do with such things, Daniel? Sure, exactly, (laughs) except be
0: disappointed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or start telling you you're giving me the wrong answers and can you try again, please? (laughs)
2: Right, fair.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, uh, since you started off by putting the question back to me, uh, I'll tell you the first Buddhist book I ever picked up because it's quite different from yours. And it was The Life of Milarepa, and Mm. it was a version by Lobzang Jivaka, or Yivaka. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read that one, but it's it's pretty far out there, and I loved it. But it may have been one of the reasons that I ended up eventually heading off uh, to the non-speculative Buddhism site, because it filled me with all kinds of wonderful fantasies about what Dharma is and should be and whatnot. And it was (laughs) quite different from your own experience. (laughs) Anyway. Great read. They should probably make a movie about it, but maybe they did. Nice. I haven't
0: read that one, but I'm relatively familiar with the life of
1: Milarepa and sort of
0: broad sketches and a few specific mm. popular anecdotes. Okay. And obviously, it's quite the wild story, right? So, And it is. definitely gives that sort of wild, crazy, wisdom, tantric, Tibetan-y feel to things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
1: which was the, I mean, I guess that was the the main door that I went through in order to start establishing a relationship with Buddhism, you know, as a social practice later on. But uh, it's a good read, actually. And there are other versions which are quite dry and dull, whereas this really reads like a novel. So it's quite fun. I recommend it to listeners if you're interested. Nice. Let's talk about more recent history. We, we're kind of coming out the end of a pandemic, obviously. It's not really going away completely, but let's, let's say that the worst of it seems to have passed. You, you you might have something to say about that. Unfortunately, I do. Sorry for the yeah, interruption. Yeah, I thought you might. That's okay. Well, look, let's break this into two parts then. So the first part of the question was this, basically, what have you learnt in these last two years of the pandemic? Wow, the, these last two-ish years have
0: been absolutely incredible in both... Um, beautiful and horrible ways, mm. right? So there's been real tragedy, real death. Um, my stepson died of almost certainly long COVID mm. uh, before there was a vaccine available. Mm-hmm. And so that that was super heavy. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I, I could go on and on. but um, and, and then, uh, a, you know, a lot of people have gotten hurt. I know a lot of people have had long COVID and, um, you know, other people have ended up in the hospital and, uh, plenty of stories of others who have died. Nobody as close to me as that. And, um, he was actually the creator of the iconic cover on my book. So when mm. you see that, you can be, um, have some thanks in memory of him, mm-hmm. remarkable person. And, uh, then, um, and on the other side, I've gotten a staggering amount done Uh, In terms of organizing, you know helping to organize the emergent phenomenology research consortium and starting the charity emergence benefactors and a lot of people have been home and that has made a lot of meetings easier a lot of other things got shut down or people kind of sheltered in place in ways they hadn't been before and that actually allowed a focus of work and creativity, which is the other side of the pandemic and lots of people at-home practicing and doing serious practice and doing retreats and doing all this stuff. So it's been a very, very mixed and um, somewhat dramatic time. Mm. Uh,
1: so that's my beginning. How about, how about you? Well, look, for a while now, it seems to me that and I don't want to sound too far out with this kind of talk, and uh, I prefer to be clearer than vague, but it does feel, and I choose that word carefully, it does feel like time has changed in a way or rather my my relationship with it has. But I don't want to really say just me. I mean, it's a a feeling that many people I spend meaningful time with uh, share, as if time had somehow stretched out. So like the pandemic feels like a lifetime in itself. And since the kind of the slowing down, at least of the, the closures and whatnot here in Italy, now with the war, it feels like that's another lifetime that started up and has been going for much longer than it actually has. So for me, at least the pandemic I say two years, it feels like it's much longer than that. Yeah, I would agree, by the way. It's made me think a lot more about the impact of the changes in our relationship with social media and online life, and our capacity to a build and sustain community, both at the local, a regional, national, international level. So I've been thinking about that quite a bit. I've been shocked, I think, in some ways, by the level of ignorance that's been made explicit by the pandemic. It's certainly affected my relationship with a lot of people who I still had relationships with from the uh, shamanic and, let's say, slightly more spiritual non-Buddhist world, and that's been interesting. There's been a sort of thread of inevitability about a lot of what's taken place over the last few years as well, both in terms of polarization in society, the kind of strengthening of anti-intellectualism, the role of Russia and China. These are all things I think about. So these are not really connected necessarily to personal practice or the kind of other topics we'll probably spend more of our time talking about today. But that's that's been huge. And that's has converted into me shifting the way I think about who I am as a practitioner in the world. That's true. And I will say one more thing, which I hadn't thought about, but comes to me now the cementification of what took place in the pandemic, I feel like I've been uh, obliged or required by external circumstances to actually start taking a stand in a way that I would avoid or would have avoided in the past. And part of that avoidance may have been rooted in some slightly naive spiritual ideal. I don't have that anymore. And I find myself quite amused by the fact that I'm doing this, that I'm taking a stand for things and against things in a way I hadn't before. And I would actually say that is connected to a concept which I think is important in the practicing life, which is the refinement of character. And so I feel like I've perhaps matured a bit or, yeah, maybe grown up a little bit, certainly refined my character a little bit. So I find myself in new terrain. I don't know if that's clear. <laughs> I, both yes and no. I would, I would be interested actually in the specific
0: stands that you ended up feeling like you were suddenly taking. So there's we have a sense of the flavor of it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, so, all right, let's talk about the pandemic briefly, and then the the war. What's been interesting is to see in uh, Italy, and I think this is true in America too, these new kind of attraction points in wider society. So, early on in the pandemic, obviously, we had the anti-vax people, and we had conspiracy theorists popping up. But we also had, I think, a lot of people who were less prone to such things suddenly becoming caught by the uh, the conspiratorial mindset, people I, I wouldn't have expected to end up there once upon a time. And two large groups who really ended up in that camp, and again, these are people I know and people I, I, I've interacted with professionally, people from the spiritual community, people from the yoga community, a lot of people from the shamanic world ended up becoming quite serious conspiracy theorists. And What I found was that their capacity to maintain that position was, in a sense, constructed on a lot of spiritual beliefs that I used to once entertain, okay? And for me, the pandemic made it clear that many of those beliefs were wrong. And for me, that was the lesson that should have been taken. And I was surprised, I guess, by the fact that many people didn't take that lesson and it seemed to me at some point that we had to be mature, responsible adults and take a stand for certain kinds of behavior, and that didn't happen. So if that makes sense, uh, that's the first thing. With the war, um, what we've seen is uh, a lot of the anti-vaxxers have ended up becoming pro-Putin here in Italy uh, in a way that I find deeply shameful. And for me, it's it's obviously you know hypocrisy to talk about love and healing and service, and care, and then buy into the idea that Putin's actually doing the right thing, the Ukraine is the creator of all the problems, and none of that matters because, you know, the people in power are bad people anyway, and our objective is to rebel against such things. There it is, Daniel, you asked. Yeah. There it is.
0: So I'm actually extremely familiar with this as well. I have a mm. lot of friends on what I would call the cosmic right, and the cosmic right, Ooh, um, the
1: cosmic right. Explain.
0: Yeah. So, so the cosmic right generally, um, it's interesting if you go looking back through the the world of sort of cosmic and magical stuff in general, it, the history of that and its association with right wing politics is actually very very long. So if you go back to the the you know the British. Golden Dawn, etc. You know Crowley and all of those. A, a lot of them were very, very right wing, and mm. th- this is nothing new. And um, these strains of, you know, sort of the lizard people are the, you know, the liberals, <laughs> and the the good people are the fascists. I mean, the right wingers who are perfectly reasonable and fighting against the lizard liberals. This and and similar themes, working with the Pleiadians and the Arcturians <laughs> oh, against the. Um, or, you know, people from or the Orion constellation and the Draco-whatevers. Mm-hmm. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is a world that I've actually been quite aware of for a long time, but I have definitely seen it amplified. And a lot of these movements kind of come together. What's been interesting is these have been, these are all threads I've known about since the 80s, actually, but they've coalesced around more anti-vax stuff and um, conspiracy things and uh, global... The, glo- the global rise of the right in general. Mm. And um, we actually just had a friend here visiting with us who was very much in that camp of things. and w- we sat around for hours and hours and hours discussing that sort of a point of view. And so so it's interesting that I, I maintain friendships with with plenty of people who fall into that camp. Mm, um, mm. but I myself do not, to put it gently. <laughs> um, and so but'm I'm, I'm willing to continue to entertain the dialogue. And mm-hmm. see where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, I actually read Pravda on a semi regular basis. I check out Fox News. I, I try to maintain a sense of what um, sides that I don't happen to be on are saying and why. I read some other conservative media and watch some other conservative videos. I myself stand far, uh, you know, quite far from those things. Um, personally, uh, and as, but have been watching this whole thing unfold, and and just been kind of astounded at what seems to be emerging as almost like a, a global coherent worldview that is mixing in fascinating elements of the new age with what I think of as fascism. Mm. Um, and so, and, and it's not that I don't uh, have lots of sympathy for the conspiracy theorists, because, I mean, the whole handling of of the coronavirus thing, there were plenty of things that world governments said that blatantly and clearly weren't true. And Mm -hmm. they clearly said them for their own political reasons, or they didn't think the public could handle it, or maybe something more nefarious. You know, there are You know the Great Reset hasn't helped, to put it gently. That's not conspiracy theory. That is literally the World Economic Forum saying things about you will have nothing, and we will surveil every aspect of your life, and you know uh, you'll you know have a an RFID chip and things. This is not conspiracy theory. You can just find the stuff on their website, and that you know, and in their and their talks and things. And so I I understand why conspiracy theory, because there clearly seem to be conspiracies, like
1: you know. And um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, just starting yeah. there. Yeah, I think you're probably more patient than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, both with um, this person that's stayed at your house and, and with the the new sources you're willing to look at. I think the shock for me is actually a disappointment with certain friends of mine who I would expect better from. And of course, I know all too well there are conspiracies. I mean, anybody who's read any of the history of this stuff. Uh, knows it it's not that we have the kind of the the, the believer in conspiracies and then the kind of naive citizen who trusts in their government fully the surprise for me with a lot of these people is I thought we'd come far enough away from some of the more wacky conspiracies uh, produced by the likes of David Icke and whatnot that it was kind of obvious that that stuff wasn't true well a little bit of distance from that kind of outlandish set of beliefs was almost a norm now and I guess I was wrong about that well, we have mainstream politicians in, in the United States that you know think Q is
0: all perfectly reasonable and and right. But that's the into, America, isn't it? Right.
2: Well, sure. So. That we
0: are we are a strange country, but I think every every country has its weird quirks. You know, yeah. Sure. W- that has the, their own maybe not quite equivalents, hopefully, but yeah. um, you know something in that. A spectrum of things. If you know, if you haven't seen the documentary, by the way, "Q Into the Storm," I would highly recommend it. It's very interesting. Mm. Anyway, mm. um, yeah, but but it's it's interesting to watch the convergence of these things because that actually brings the, these movements are have refined and brought together and kind of like battle tested um tr- themes and memes and tropes and things that. That, um, that work, They resonate with a certain portion of the population, they resonate together in certain um, seemingly more fundamental states of mind and perspectives, And they galvanize interest mm-hmm. and attention, mm-hmm. and the way that has been amplified to great profit by the the um, social media companies recognizing that anger is the number one thing that drives, you know, contact with um with and continued engagement with social media platforms, the algorithms have very much figured out. You know what we humans are about, and what we humans are about appears to appears to be being polarized and pissed off. <laughs> so, and that's what the the AIs are showing, and mm-hmm. they continue mm-hmm. to amplify that for for great profit. So, sure. you know, uh, again, um. Uh, yeah, the social dilemma, if people haven't seen that, very, very worth watching. And so now we have technologies that are, you know, this, the, the great um, phrase of uh, um, paleolithic emotions, medieval mm-hmm. institutions and godlike technology. The godlike technology is taking our paleolithic emotions and
1: running with it as far as it can. Yeah. Yeah, uh, social dilemma is great, agreed, certainly worth watching. And all that's good, and I agree with you. But you know what? I think it comes down to a very simple equation, which is, I didn't expect all this from friends. (laughs) Mm. Wow. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, It it is a bit ouch. And it's interesting because the shamanic organization I'm loosely associated with, and I've almost left at this point, is divided along these lines. The world is. Yeah, interesting. But again, you know, one of the things I guess and again, I haven't thought a huge amount about this, is that an alternative spiritual group or religious group is often a kind of refuge in a physical sense and social sense from these external spaces. What's interesting is just the leakage that's taking place across society and seeing these extremes, which once upon a time I would have looked across the pond at America and said, well, those Americans are a bit crazy, aren't they? And it didn't make it over here so much. And and now, obviously, with the social connections we have through the Internet, everything gets everywhere very, very quickly. So, yeah, I think my disappointment, in a sense, is also about that. It's about the space no longer being a kind of uh, robust structure which withstands the excesses of wider society and its, uh, its changes, and instead has become kind of saturated by it. And it's a loss of innocence to some degree there, I guess. So that's certainly something that's come out about for me over the last couple of years. But again, mm. I salute your patience with this friend because, uh, honestly, because of the the rules that we had here about social distancing and the the lockdown during the worst period of the pandemic, I also didn't see a lot of those friends for quite some time physically. And when I saw a very close old friend of mine who's more like a family member, it was it was quite shocking when he started talking about Putin being right and whatnot. And I just had to shut the conversation down because I, I think when you, when you get to the point where you're, you know, you're meeting teenagers who've just lost their parents in the Ukraine mm. and you hear their stories to then go and try and entertain somebody's idea that it's a conspiracy, I just can't do it. Can't do it anymore.
0: Totally understand.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. There it is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that was an interesting sidetrack. Let's come back to practice. How about that?
0: Sure. And I will uh, spare you my thoughts on where I think the pandemic is going
1: to go. Well, maybe we can save it for later for a happy ending to the podcast conversation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because I I know you're you're Mr. Optimistic. You are likely to have a joyous
1: life. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll see. Let's just see what happens. (laughs) This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping which I quite like, really, housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper middle class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else, perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway. I think it's right that you do so, I do so myself, and it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this, so some of my favourite podcasts, well they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones like this one are usually put together by hard working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So give something back today folks give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism, waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc, etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options. Coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. One of your earlier claims to fame is that you were a key figure in putting together this hardcore dharma movement. So, you know, it's 2022. Do you still consider yourself a hardcore dharma practitioner? What does that mean for you today? And has your understanding of it changed since the early days of that project?
0: Um, Yes. So, yeah, um, I do consider myself a hardcore dharma practitioner. And what I mean by that, for those not familiar with my stuff, is that, um, you know, technical craft, states and stages, intense retreats, high-dose practice, risky practices are all things that, for whatever reason, uh, appeal to me and have called to me and, and still do, actually. So um, I have been working quite hard on my project now, this this Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium and Emergence Benefactors. But if someone said to me right now, Daniel, your project is well in hand. We've got this. You don't need to check your phone for the next three or four weeks I would be on intensive retreat practicing 16 hours a day tomorrow um, mm-hmm. and spend a month doing that. And in fact, when the pandemic hit, I actually had two more three-week. I had done already in, in the beginning of 2020, right as this thing started to um, hit, I was actually on fire casino retreat, a three-week intensive with just a few friends in Bavaria when the first German cases happened just 50 kilometers from us. And then we actually had to sort of flee the UK on the last flights home before Ooh, they kind of shut wow. almost everything down. I got I got literally the last flight from the UK to Orlando on the airline I was on. The, the cabin crew was saying they were all gonna be fired. Sorry, we're back to coronavirus. And um, it pervades everything. And uh, I had two, uh, you know, so that was after a second three week fire casino retreat that we were doing, you know, and this is again, very intensive practices where you get these very, very powerful and unusual effects. And I had two more three week, um, fire casino retreats scheduled for that year, basically back to back in in the summer in 2020. And those didn't happen because of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've actually built a cabin where people can come and, and, you know, uh, uh, you know have a few friends to to do these intensive practices and i'm not interested in retreats shorter than like three weeks really mm. um because people just can't get into the territory in, in shorter time that i find interesting so i would definitely still think of myself as as being um into really hardcore practice and would be, be doing a lot more of it we're not working on my service projects right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you mentioned risky practice what's that well, um, just like even the most advanced mountain climbers or skydivers or whatever should still remember that what they do is risky, I still remember that what I do is risky. Um, w- these practices can lead to some very strong, far out there experiences. And just because one has managed to handle lots of those with a sense of aplomb and panache and a sense of humor in the past does not guarantee that one will always handle them in, in the future the same way although it certainly, you know, um, makes it more likely, I would think. But, you know, when you're rewriting the code when the operating system is running and getting into the kind of territory that I and my friends like, you're, you know, you're still kind of asking for it in the same way that anybody doing a high-performance sport, a high-adventure thing is, you know, you just have to understand there's there's real risk there. Like, you could Mm -hmm. sprain your ankle if you're doing marathons. You could get shin splints or, you know, whatever thing, you know, pull some tendon or whatever, you get rhabdomyolysis in the same way with this kind of stuff.
1: Okay, but you you know, if you're going to say that, you kind of have to give us an example of what it might look like to get a a sprained muscle or twist an ankle or break a bone. What's it going to look like with the kind of practices you do? Yeah, people can
0: freak out. You know, Mm. uh, people can freak out. Um, Nearly every one of these retreats that we've done uh, at some point, at someone has had their freak out and Mm. generally last hours can last days. Luckily, um, none lasting weeks yet, but you know, there's probably a tail on that range and certainly all kinds of complex and destabilizing effects can occur. You know, we had one retreat where, you know, nine people went on it and three of them ended long-term relationships right immediately thereafter, you know, Mm. and that, you know, and just you can, you can see these these, uh, these moments because, again, it's very deep stuff and, um, yeah, not entirely safe. The first talk I, I give when when we hold these things is this is not entirely safe. You understand going in, accepting as consenting adults, the risk, benefits, and alternatives, and the alternative is not to do anything this intense. Mm. So, uh,
1: and the risks are real and known. The sort of practical thought that comes to mind, though, is that uh, if you're doing these very intense retreats, presumably selecting for who gets to do them might be worthwhile is that something you're doing or are they open to anybody
0: oh no they're selected with incredible care definitely not no 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 No. i've only actually taught one retreat where it was open um to the public and Mm -hmm. that was at dharma treasure in in 2018 and while there were some fine people there uh i will never do that again
1: (laughs) okay yeah i can probably guess why You mentioned two long-term, or two or three maybe you said, uh, long-term relationships coming to an end after people had come off one of these retreats. Now, you're in a long-term relationship yourself. Yeah. What impact does that have on your relationship with practice, especially if you're getting up and disappearing for three weeks at a time on retreat? Well, um, a bunch of
0: different answers. Uh, Sometimes uh, my wife has uh, come with me, which is really cool uh, on these things and so then that's a shared experience which is good. Um we also, you know, we've been married for 20 years now and so oh, you know, know. If, if someone is going to, you know, take a few weeks or do something and go travel somewhere on their own, we're we're fine with that. We're you know, it's, it's totally fine, you know. Mm. <laughs> we're okay. And so uh you know it, and um and we very much respect each other's um autonomy as much as, much as we respect our connection and the ability to, you know, she might go off to Laos and I might go off to Malaysia. And, you know, we, so during our travel around the world phase, which was before coronavirus hit, um, yeah, you know, sometimes we traveled together, sometimes we didn't. And it was just a question of where everybody wanted to go and when, and that's okay. So, so on that regard, it's, it's been cool. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm but I'm lucky in that one that way not everybody's relationship is like that or their you know their attachment style or or whatever yeah. but luckily ours is is very conducive to that sort of thing
1: yeah well I like to think of personal relationships as being like uh, containers and not in terms of entrapment or, or such nonsense but as a kind of containing space where there are certain rhythms and patterns explicit and implicit agreements and they have their own lives Uh, I've also been with my wife now for 20 years so nice congratulations yeah thanks and it's quite something there are a lot of um, unexpected rewards for committing to someone for such a long period if
0: it's a good person that you're compatible with yeah i'd agree
1: yeah otherwise you you kind of hope you wouldn't stay with them for for 20 years other people do i know Uh, they do but you know hopefully not well not you and i no no we we've gotten lucky Uh, yeah or maybe we just chose carefully or we were chosen carefully or or whatever right right? (laughs) obviously we changed though right i mean you've changed i i've i've known you personally not for so long but i've seen you change in that time too and i think it's interesting Mm -hmm the way the the relationship uh with a long term partner adapts and expands or contracts in order to both contain that change right in the sense of holding it so that it can exist in the relationship without destroying it or without being a, a motivation or a reason for upping and leaving can you talk to that at all i mean you've gone through your own challenges obviously in your practicing life how how has your relationship with your wife kind of held that or held a space within which you can go off change i imagine in some cases rather dramatically you know and come back home and sort of you know step back into a relationship
0: it's it's such a huge topic i i am not quite sure i know where to begin Mm. um uh i i I mean the thing is we've both changed we've both done all kinds of practices Mm. she's gone on retreats i didn't go on i've gone on retreats she didn't go on uh we and yet somehow we continue to uh, very much appreciate each other's journeys, even though in some ways they're very, very different. But in other ways, they're actually curiously the, the same. So I haven't I've, everything I've so, been saying sounds kind of trite. Let me see if I can get more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, uh in in general, I think that practice has tremendously enhanced our relationship, enhanced ourselves, enhanced our appreciation of each other as people, and our, our you know our level of maturity, ability to handle things. I am incredibly grateful for practice. Um, I had a first marriage that was more impacted, I think, in some negative ways by practice. That was a lo- there was a lot more intensive retreat stuff you know compressed with intense graduate studies compressed with um substantial lack of financial resources so you know compressed with just being young and and so um so it was it was really actually my first marriage that that saw that caught the brunt of the the not so fun things that practice can do we were both practitioners we both went on retreats and and it was sort of fine if we were both in high or sort of you know medium places mm-hmm. or if one of us was in a low place but the problem is if in both of us in a low place with that much stress going on was not always um, it, it just didn't always make for as much of a fun time and hence the second marriage so um, but this one really got the benefits of a lot more sense of like appreciation of mistakes made um lessons learned uh a lot more stability maturity and um and benefit so that
1: helps a little bit mm Mm-mm. yeah for sure yeah maturity is a big one yeah it can easily end up becoming a kind of trite ideal, but I, I actually think it's perhaps one of the most fundamental and uh, important elements of what it means to grow and walk sure. some kind of path, right? I think when you're younger, you know, the the big stuff sounds fun, the mystical powers, the superhuman abilities, whether they be of the Miller Aper type or just the capacity to sustain long uh, phases of intense concentration as you get older I think you know the the other stuff starts to become more important the capacity to care deeply to walk your talk uh, to be mature enough to actually commit and accept loss and and whatnot so what obstacles do you still find you, yourself coming up against in the both the practicing life in terms of setting practice whether it be a daily business or a retreat but also the well I think you you like to make a a clear division between practice and then the kind of ethical life right what you do off cushion how you walk in the world in a way that has integrity and uh, reduces harm and suffering what, what, what obstacles are you currently working with apart from being excessively busy actually that is the, the big
0: thing so that yeah. is ac- actually apart saying apart from is like then there's no way to answer the question
2: yeah, yeah. the only answer <laughs> i
0: i can give is actually about that so Um, Right now, for whatever reason, I feel called very much, like, I have this thing about mage and sage, and sage wanders out the city gates and goes and sits by a quiet stream and lets the world be its mad thing somewhere far away, and Mm. sage engages with the world and uses the power to hopefully do some sort of useful good. I, for whatever reasons, have been very much in a mage phase of trying to do good in the world to organize this massive international multidisciplinary research team to help run the charity that is trying to find the hundreds of millions of dollars it will take to do all this research and build out the group with all the capabilities to accomplish the plans of the emergent phenomenology research consortium and and that takes an impressive amount of time I could actually give it every single waking second and more and it wouldn't be enough
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So actually, finding the boundaries on that—I I have a tendency to work, to put it gently. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a weird mix of like, you know, um, greyhound and uh, uh, oxen in terms of sort of, uh, and I just it was designed to pull things and run. Uh, you know, it's kind <laughs> of, um, and but that can get out of balance, mm. and so um, one of the things I have. Uh, that I'm trying to figure out now is literally just how to go on vacation, as I was mentioning earlier. I haven't really figured that out yet in the face of a new startup. And and it's funny, as I talk to other startup CEOs and and people, because I'm now the CEO of the charity and the board chair, this is a common theme and that the early life of most organizations to be successful really does require constant work and maintenance to, to grow it into something that can that can be more stable entirely on its own. Mm-hmm. And we're getting there. We have quite a team that has really been trained up and a lot of good people. But it's, you know, it's still early days. We're we're a little bit over a year old as a charity and a little bit about two years old as the research consortium. And so that work-life balance is actually my biggest personal challenge right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I sit, my practice, you know, I, it's a strange thing. My practice is exquisite. Like it's, it's delightful. I have all these capabilities in tech. I just, I don't get as much time to do it as I would like. I get, you know, half an hour to an hour a day, Mm -hmm. which feels low to me. Mm-hmm. And and I'm lucky that I have other things. I have a float tank in my house so I can relax okay. that. <laughs> and um I have uh, a wife that very much appreciates encouraging me to take some time off and mm-hmm. walk in the woods and she builds these marvelous trails uh, that that really open up the nature to exploration. We're lucky enough to live on on 50 beautiful acres of, you know, big with big trees and and it's just gorgeous here in the spring. So so those things are nice. And these are really very first worldly sorts of problems, right? Mm-hmm. I can hardly complain. I do this to myself. You know, I don't need to work. I don't I do this all as a volunteer. I don't need any money. Mm-hmm. So this is entirely brought on, but for whatever reason I feel compelled because I, I've known so many people who have run into the healthcare system who have and and it's treated people poorly as a result of their the strange things going on with them in meditation. Just before this call, I was Talking with um, someone who was uh, struggling deeply and had been to the A and E, and were describing the sensations they were experiencing, and they said they just looked at him like he was—they were totally crazy and had no idea what he was talking about. And so, you know, and you know, feel compelled to be the change I want to see in the world and help a, a very large team of people to change that. Mm-hmm. And so that's my biggest struggle at the moment is figuring out, you know, again, I would love to do a retreat, but I can't figure out how to do it.
1: Yeah. Plus, you mentioned going on vacation, going on holiday. It seems an odd thing to do these days. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in theory retired, which is very strange. Right. So yeah. I'm like, well, you're kind of retired. I mean, it sounds like you've just basically taken on a new job. I mean, that's, yeah, I that's what it is, right? Company. Yeah. Nonprofit. I like um, quite organic metaphors for what it is we do in the world. So, you know, giving birth to a project is very similar to giving birth to a child, right? Yes. The first six months are the most intense. The, The next years are also very demanding. And then the kind of care and nurturing you need to give to the child as they grow changes in the different later phases of life, but it never goes away, unfortunately. And I think giving birth to a project is very usefully seen in that way, too. And it does kind of need a father and a mother. And it sounds like you're playing the role of both, though, yes. which is maybe.
0: Um, luckily, we have a lot of great people in the organization. We have a great board. We have a bunch of great people that we have hired mm. to do various things, and it's a wonderful team. Um, and yet, at the moment, you know, being the founder who you know has the the training and the connections and the, all of that stuff and the background in this, um, the, I'm working as fast as I can to to make sure the rest of the team is as trained up as they possibly can be. I don't like single points of failure being an ER or an A&E doctor, as you would call them. I'm very familiar with the facts of mortality and that I could just drop dead any second. And so I, I'm i something somewhat obsessed with trying to figure out how to make sure that the thing could, could live on just fine were something mm. to happen to me. But it's still a lot. It's still a
1: challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is this becoming a, a legacy project for you? Oh, definitely. Sure. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, tell us why we should care about all this. I mean, you've you've been mentioning it throughout the conversation so far. I did want to give you some time to actually spend a few words on it. But if you were talking to an average person that might be listening, why should they care about, let's see if I can get the name right, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. Is that right? That's it. So the reason someone should care about it is
0: as far as I can tell, the number of people who have had some kind of what we're calling emergent experience, and most people would call mystical, magical, spiritual, energetic, psychedelic, et cetera, Mm. experience and what the speculative non-Buddhist would call them, who knows. Um, But, (laughs) um, but something a little different, something that the clinical mainstream basically has no options, but to call mental illness and basically no treatments, but to say you need meds. Um, Okay. And, uh, that, that this is taboo. So for example, you know, we have people within the group who might have just, let's say a double doctoral degree and be at one of the top universities in the world, or a bunch of them actually. And they would never tell the people that they work with that they had had these powerful experiences, even though they're the most important and transformative of their life. And when you have like literally the top institutions in the world where the top trained people literally cannot tell anybody about the most important things to them, obviously you got a serious problem. And, um, and, and so to, be, to meet the basic requirements of medical ethics, where uh, you know the, the four basic pillars of medical ethics are patient autonomy, which involves informed consent, which involves an appreciation of the risks, benefits, and alternatives of anything, including a diagnostic framework, a management strategy, a practice that you might do, etc. Um, there's no good prospective data on that to even drive those conversations with regard to any of this basically, um, to have enough knowledge to to have to do good, meaning beneficence, and to avoid harm, non-malfeasance. There's not anything like enough knowledge for the people in the healthcare and mental health industries globally to do that. And then the qualities of justice and equity, which um, basically means can you scale this around the globe across cultures with language and frameworks that people can understand and are appropriate in Tehran as they would be in Johannesburg as rural Alabama where I sit currently talking to you. Um, that's a tall order. And there's nothing like that with regard to any of this. And so you have all these human experiences where we have no reasonable diagnostic codes, no reasonable health protocols, things that I think are blatantly harmful in the d s m five. and and you know, this is not anybody's fault necessarily, I hope, um I'm trying to avoid conspiracy theory. but um but I, I think that the the alternative world of people who do experience this has failed to provide the tribes that require things like longitudinal perspective, comparative, you know, outcome studies Mm -hmm. and reasonable Mm -hmm. understandings of physiology. We have not provided the, the perfectly reasonable needs of the clinical and scientific and global public health, et cetera, mainstream with the things that they require to take this stuff seriously. And so Mm -hmm. luckily I happen to be part of this amazing now over a hundred person group with people at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and Brown and Stanford and Vanderbilt and Berkeley and, you know, MIT and on and on and on, all kinds of excellent universities that don't have those kinds of fancy names, um, who are very talented people, who who understand that there's a there there, they understand the problem, and they're willing to make this happen. I mean, there's a Pew Research study that said, you know, something like 49% of Americans have had a spiritual or mystical experience. That's a lot. You know, mm-hmm. and like 25% of Americans have seen a ghost. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you do surveys on college students and something like 25% have had some sort of, pro, you know, profound transformative peak or mystical or something experience. And so this is, there are, this is there's a lot of this, but because it is so taboo and that the mental health world basically says you are crazy, that designation percolates through. And so what we're trying to do is really literally change the era. Because, and when I say era, I mean as big as the shift between like the medieval period and the Renaissance, where when you transform the fundamental relationship between science, religion, mystical spiritual practices, philosophy, economics, and the conceptions of medicine and health which is what we're trying to do, you, that's era change. And so we're literally trying to upgrade the era from the sort of weird mishmash that is po- postmodernism retrofitted onto still a rel- relatively modern institutions. And instead, I, I know that there's something that, that can happen that is way better than that, because it happens if you run into the right practitioners and the right doctors and the right people, but it's not scaled globally. And so to meet the the basic ethical requirements of scaling this globally, we need to figure out how to get the evidence quality that allows it to happen. And so that's what we're working on. Ooh, exciting stuff. Thank you. Yeah. And so that's very compelling to me because, you know, I have this MD and I have an MSPH in epidemiology and I have this, Mm -hmm. you know, some understanding of neuroscience and I just happen to have this friend circle of awesome people (laughs) and the time. And so why not try to be the change we all want to see in the world?
1: So that's what we're doing. Agreed, good man. I like it. Yeah, it's interesting because you know you say it, and it seems like duh. Yeah, we we kind of need that. That's obvious. So so why hasn't it happened before?
0: Hmm. Is, is that a rhetorical question or
1: or? It could be either. Take it okay. if you want it.
0: Yeah. So I've actually done a meticulous study of the last 120 years of people attempting to do this going back to 1901, Ooh, 1902 okay. and William James. And actually before that, so there was, there were some, you know, people in the late 1800s who, who were trying to do similar things with sort of the sense of cosmic consciousness, weirdly mm-hmm. enough, and, and terms like that. And there have been numerous movements going back even before William James, but he was, I think one of the biggest one His varieties of religious experiences. Like what are the best books you will ever read on this? It gets mentioned all the time and nobody reads it, but read it. It's just incredible. (laughs) and um his 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 capacity to think about ontologies and frameworks and cultural stuff is just delightful it's there's a few dated things but otherwise excellent and then Mm. abraham maslow tried this in the 50s and then esalen and the transpersonal people have been trying since the 60s and the counterculture movement with psychedelics have been trying and um then you have the meta psychiatry and ultra consciousness movements of the 70s with Stanley Dean. and then you have the Groffs and you know so those people and Emma Bragdon and going through a very transpersonal lens really in the 80s and 90s and and um uh, Jack Cornfield. And so you have all these great movements, and then you know, in the early '90s, we have um, Lukoff, Lew, and Turner, who managed to get a little bit into the DSM. That basically, if you're having the stuff in a religious tradition, you're not always otherwise dysfunctional. Maybe it's not mental illness, but basically everybody counts it as mental illness anyway. They don't actually use his fine innovation. Um, and uh, but you know, so but from my point of view nearly all of these have been essentially complete failures to, to penetrate the clinical mainstream and global public consciousness. Mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of obvious reasons for that. One, none of them had the science. None of them had the ability for measurement. We now have measuring instruments. Mm -hmm. You can now see some of the stuff on fMRI or at least some sort of correlates of it and EEG. Nobody had the AI stuff to manage speech and emotions and and correlate it with biometric stuff. We didn't have the epigenetic capabilities. We didn't have the phenomenological understandings and and capacity. Um, Luckily, you know, with neurophenomenology of Varela and microphenomenology of Claire Petit-Mangean and the work of Sarah Lazar starting to put meditators in scanners, All of that is starting to come forward to to now be big enough, and these practices are all scaling enough, and mindfulness and psychedelics are all, you know, becoming mainstream enough that suddenly there is the capacity to justify the spending, the hundreds of millions of dollars it will take to do the research to actually do what the clinical mainstream needs, which is like outcome studies looking at, you know, hospital bedtimes and pharmacology, you know, um, you know, expense reduction, you know, from national healthcare systems and, you know, patient satisfaction scores, the whole, you know, there's also the movement of um, kind of metric-based medicine and, you know, ev- evidence-based medicine and some of the pushback and critiques of the problems of the DSM-5 and, you know, the anti-psychiatry movement, we can be sort of a synthesis that does something, I think, better than either of those. And so I think this is really a time where suddenly we have the tools, the tech, the justification, the global movement, the the and a lot of other things that just none of them had before and so i think we're really in a place where this could actually happen it will still take decades but it's possible now
1: yeah yeah that's great and i i think as well the variety that you're speaking to in your your overview there both of the past and the present uh, especially what we have today with this meeting point between the sciences which is not just well, how can I say? I, I think in the past, one of the other problems has been as always is that a lot of people that have wanted to do this kind of thing have implicitly wanted to do it in order to speak well of their own tradition oh, or yes. their own experience, right? So it's right. always been hijacked to some degree by the kind of slightly perverted personal desire to have their religion or their practice proven to be the conquering tradition or practice of them all and finally be bona fide. If you've got this rich matrix of different kinds of professionals from different arenas and you've got all that scientific resource uh, available i think you suffocate the potential for that to happen in a way that was not uh, possible in the past either so i think that social aspect is very very important sounds great daniel sounds great and i and i wish you all the best with it and i hope it uh, it blossoms and uh, bears fruit to those who, who might gain something from it yeah good Thank you. Yeah, that sense of ontological agnosticism or neutrality
0: where we're not trying to prove material primacy or consciousness primacy or any of yeah. those sorts of things or the, yeah, the superiority of any tradition or technique. Um, you know, all of us are coming from our favorite techniques, but all of us are willing to sort of leave those at the door and mm. say, what, what really emerges from this rich dialogue of the great feast? Oh, yeah. You know, and actually inspired in some ways by the mm-hmm. concept of the Great Feast, where you <laughs> you 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 put aside the sort of um, you take away the licenses to uh, power of whatever authorities and instead you just see what the data shows and you see mm-hmm. you know you 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 come in and try to figure out what will what will really scale what are the win-win wins that help the religions do what they do better the governments do what they do better the practitioners do what they do better the mm-hmm. patients do what they do better insurance systems healthcare systems trying to figure out because we do think there are things that would be good for all of these mm-hmm. that that can be pulled from a range of traditions that have figured out cool stuff we just need to prove it and yep. prove it in a really balanced way, and so yes, yep. that also that ontological neutrality and lack of being beholden to or rah rah a tradition is also definitely new. I haven't seen anything quite like that before.
1: No, no, I don't think so either. Even the Mind and Life Institute, which the Dalai Lama was involved in, was clearly overly sympathetic to the position of the Dalai Lama, which is understandable again and and fine yeah, for the, the time period in which that took place. But at some point, that had to be left behind too. So perhaps your emergent phenomenology research consortium will emerge from that and uh, carry forward some of that that maturation which is necessary for these projects to evolve anyway right that's just the way it is these things take time and as you've said you made it a few decades but if it gets going well within the first few years there's no reason why it shouldn't uh, build that momentum and just uh, keep going even when Mr Ingram is no longer around right I certainly hope so. I'm doing my absolute best to make myself utterly expendable. <laughs> Good man, that's a nice uh, a nice way to speak of selflessness. Let's see, let's talk about what else is coming next, because there are a couple of questions I'd like to ask both about um, what comes next for hardcore practitioners more broadly, but also um, what comes next for Buddhism, which I think is going through a very interesting phase, right? It's not just mindfulness, it's not just whether that's authentic Buddhism or not, which is, I think, a kind of a distraction from more interesting questions. Um, how do you see Buddhism continuing to evolve, devolve, change and mutate over the next decade or two, whether that be in America, <laughs> the Western world or the world at large? It's a nice, easy question for you, isn't it?
0: Wow, goodness gracious. So the first thing is, obviously, Buddhism is so diverse. That would be like saying, how is Christianity evolving in all its denominations, right? Is, so that,
1: is that not a great question to ask,
0: too? It's, well, it is actually a great question to ask. I totally agree. Um, so obviously, Buddhism is everything from, you know, little village monasteries in places where it's super traditional and they bless crops. And, and you know, it's, it's a very local um, social phenomena to you know, the way it's interacting with the sciences and fMRI and EEG and other neuroscience methods and, and, you know, the way it has been, has been integrated into healthcare systems. And then all of the traditions all suddenly encountering each other in a way they really hadn't, you know, since really Nalanda, as far as I can tell. And, um, I, I think it's nearly impossible to predict, and I realize that's a cop-out answer, but there have been so many strange twists and turns to all these stories, so many curious scandals, so many bizarre fusions, so many um, movements and counter-movements already that sort of tracking the the day-to-day of it, wow, what a rich and intricate um you know technicolor disaster and glorious parade um so that's my first thing the second thing i will say is that the the spirit of mixed martial arts with that pragmatism i think still has a lot to say of like what is the best of each of these traditions all of which thought they were the best
2: Hmm.
0: and and i think science is going to have a tremendous amount to lend to that conversation And if done well could be very very fruitful if done badly it could be totally detrimental as often the case in science unfortunately um but i think the biggest thing is going to be actually the in places related to neuroimaging i mean that changed the conversation when sarah lazar put meditators and scanners and you could see brain changes it changed the conversation. The world was never the same again with regard to this stuff, even though they had the clinical trials showing some reduction in stress and stuff. That's not the same as that, like, you know, and I think we've grown so used to it that we forget what a shift that was. And I think that playing out, particularly as the imaging technology gets better, as it gets cheaper, as more and more people are wearing EEG headsets and walking around logging their moods on their phones, and we can crowdsource staggering amounts of data and Muse and all of that kind of stuff i think that is going to be the biggest contribution that the west can lend to buddhism and that buddhism and other interesting meditative traditions can help uh um inform the West. so that's the dialogue i'm the most excited about and that's actually where my own project lies Mm
1: -hmm. obviously Mm -hmm. so yeah and what about hardcore practitioners because you are quite a unique bunch uh do you see any New directions being taken. Um, there seem to be a lot hardcore. more of us. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's a lot more
1: of us. I mean, there just clearly seem to be more
0: people who take this on as as something that is viable, as reasonable. Um, yeah, I think there's just more and more people who who think this is a, a, an acceptable thing to do and are called to it, and the resources to do it are continue to expand, and um, yeah. So, and the obvious value of it. Continues to be better appreciated in mainstream circles and it's having an impact, you know The sort of mindfulness is just about calming down and and, you know, noticing your feelings in your body, which is cool You know that is is important and reasonable, but the I think a lot of people are excited that there might be vastly more to the story and so I, I think this, it's an important conversation that continues to be ongoing. And what I we hope to do with our group is really give people, again, that risk, benefits, and alternatives, that if you do this light practice, there's a small chance of wild effects happening, but not as much. Mm-hmm. But if you do these other slightly more intense practices, the possibilities of both downsides and benefits go up. And then having some reasonable ability to compare these in a data-driven way And, you know, I mean, like I have people who come to me and and are asking me questions that they couldn't possibly ask their doctor, like, hey, I was thinking of doing a 10 day meditation retreat versus doing like five grams of shrooms and a big hit of five MEO at the peak or something versus go down to the jungle and do a bunch (laughs) of ayahuasca versus the super intense, hot yoga, Kriya Kundalini thing. You know, Mm -hmm. what do you think? (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, we attempt to have a conversation about their risk profiles, their, you know, their tolerances, you know, what they're looking for, what their goals are. Mm-hmm. And I think I can do that and more of it, you know, at least based on my own sort of skewed and biased case series of however many thousands of people I've talked to at this point can mm-hmm. can say something I think semi-intelligent about that. But I'm going to be really excited when we actually have great data to compare those things, and and we will actually know things like statistics, so people can have give real informed consent rather than pretty good kind of half guessy kind of informed consent, which is they do now. Which they, I think that'll be a real change.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Although I wonder to what degree you can eliminate all of this wonderful mushy messiness, which is just part and parcel of of being human. Yeah, it's still going to um, be messy, but it. Will, yeah, it, there will still
0: be, I think, more ability to um, make wise
1: choices based on better data. That's what I hope. That would be good. I don't quite know how to say this because the word's the problem, but I think what you're describing seems to me part and parcel of a a wider social process as well, which is the challenging of the kind of ephemeral nature of this term spiritual. For quite a long time now, we've been lacking an alternative to that word and people pick up different phrases, but they don't really stick. If you're going to have some of these practices continuing to be liberated from the context of wackiness and of this kind of abstract mystical practice or set of practices that people may do if they get lucky and bump into the right person or pick up the right book, (laughs) right? Um, But instead becomes part of a kind of a matrix of potential practices that people can find out about without having to rely on some new age guru or some difficult to find exotic uh, buddhist teacher or hindu teacher or whatnot that would be a certain uh, certainly a positive movement forward linguistically and socially it means we have to find some more down-to-earth terminology for talking about what our mystical or far-out experience is because obviously that means we can make sense of them as part of our physical reality without concept or that word spiritual seems to, each year, as each year goes by, lose its appeal to the general public. Obviously, at the same time as that may happen, people still need things, or they still have experiences, whether it's in their childhood, as you were describing beforehand, or whether it's something that comes about later through some kind of uh, engagement with either a meditation experience or psychedelics or whatnot. So... Maybe this is good. Maybe this is some kind of uh, next stage of collective maturation about the way we think about such things. But who knows? That's all speculation. We're running out of time here. And I want to ask you to do something more Dharma-ish before we finish. Would that be okay? Sure. Well, look, I've mentioned maturation twice now. I'm going to finish up with this, the life of a practitioner who commits deeply to any meaningful practice means that that person changes, right? If not, what the hell is the purpose of it? We have, though, these kind of core principles within Buddhism that you've written about. You wrote about uh, in a very interesting way in your Hardcore Dharma book, the first one. That was remind me of the title. It's just slipped out of my mind. Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Thank you very much. We've got these core principles, and I'd like to ask you what your experience is of them now, after years and years of practice. I mean, because it's not frozen in time. So, if we take something like suffering, you're a an ex doctor. You're somebody who's experienced his own suffering. How has your understanding of suffering globally matured in this stage of your life?
0: Yeah. So, um,
1: obviously, being a doctor
0: gave me a very um, the kind of appreciation of suffering that you really, I think probably can only get in those kinds of circumstances if you find yourself in a war zone or a refugee situation or emergency departments or just happen to have an unusually hard life, which some people do, um, then, you know, because I've seen an impressive amount of death uh, and people dying. You know, I've seen an impressive number of people screaming in agony and and having extreme emotional duress and challenges. Um, so So that definitely helped inform my sense of suffering and the truth. Number one, you know, the Buddha obviously talked about suffering at three different levels. Um, level number one is the ordinary suffering of, you know, uh, old age, lamentation, pain, grief, and you know, despair, birth, aging, death, and all the rest of it. And, that level of suffering obviously is a serious, serious issue that, that, um, you know, you and the other thing is you can only do so much to mitigate that, because the world is going to roll through, healthcare problems are going to roll through. There's only so much you can do. And so while there's lots you can do to hopefully live a more suffering-free and healthy life, and to help those around you to do so as well, there are limits. And so the the other things that practice really helped me appreciate are the other two. Um, sort of ways I would break down suffering. And the other one is, you know, the states of mind that people can get into as a result of the first type of suffering, ordinary suffering in all its forms, um, having zhanic skills where you can, at a whim, just drop into silent, peaceful, blissful states, while obviously having the potential to become escapist, um. also can be incredibly skillful to have that optionality without resorting to substances or, uh, you know, expensive distractions or other unskillful things. And I've really come to appreciate the value of that middle training of concentration, mm-hmm. which doesn't get as much talk sometimes unless you swirl in those circles. But that's an incredibly valuable skill set. And there is a layer of suffering that just exists at baseline that when you drop into those states, they're clearly better than, and um, being able to access those quickly and easily is just an incredible benefit. So I'd recommend it to anybody who's interested in learning that those kinds of techniques, who is willing to appreciate the risks of that kind of training as well, which is bringing up curious, you know, emotional things and trauma and um, powers and all that. Um, And then but the last kind of suffering, the sort the suffering that is because of a misperception of basic sensations and coming to the conclusion that somehow that you know these impermanent things make up a stable us, that that suffering can be eliminated is actually just amazing and the most useful thing that anybody I think has discovered from a you know existential point of view. <laughs> and uh, not to be too perennialist about it, but regardless of what tradition you're coming from you know they're very likely you're going to find somewhere some examples of people who have gotten at least some parts of that if not the whole thing and it's of incredible utility so i would recommend for those who are interested in in eliminating that type of suffering that applies to all the others regardless of how happy or joyful or painful or whatever things are that that actually can be eliminated in that weird sort of mental tension that comes from attempting that sort of the mind virus of attempting to single out you know this sense of a a pattern of sensations that it tries to solidify and stabilize into the separate thing that creates all the weird problems of the illusion of duality and all that that's eliminatable and um that is the good news to put it in sort of christian terms and um and that that form of suffering can be eliminated is a miracle because you know obviously as we've noticed the world can be something of a shit show. pardon my french I think it's yeah. French, actually.
1: It's just an expression. It was definitely French. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, what about what about karma?
0: <laughs> um, the older I've gotten, I think the more mm. conservative I've gotten. Ooh, okay. Let's hear about that. And um, in terms of really appreciating that every thought, every feeling, every action, every word – does something and that we can make better choices in those regards. And that doesn't mean that all good choices will lead to good outcomes, but certainly on average, I think good choices lead to better outcomes. And that I think is straightforwardly true. And you can, um, and so, uh, just the ability to be mindful enough to pay attention to the choices one makes and their consequences, And to consider the wisdom of those who have gone before and tried to help us lead better, um, more skillful, less suffering producing and more suffering reducing lives uh, is of real value. And I'm very grateful to all the people who came before who luckily made lots of mistakes and learned from them and tried to help us. So as we make mistakes, hopefully we learn from them a little bit faster and avoid some of the worst ones. So how about
1: Mm. you? Well, two things. One, uh, isn't it funny that that's supposed to be inevitable that people become more conservative as they get older? I think that the problem with that kind of claim is that it often gets left in the field of politics. Conservative in terms of sort of the
0: basics of ethics, the basics of watching our minds, the basics of, of unskillful emotions and the damage they can do in the world, the basics of trying to be more kind and helpful. So I don't mean conservative Uh, in the sense of right wing, because I'm actually very far to the left side of things um, uh, politically uh, in a way that literally gives me no representation in the United States at all. There are no (laughs) candidates I can vote for that are anything close to my views. Uh, There it is. So it's not really a representative democracy um, in that sense. Um, I I have choices of center right and far right those are pretty much my choices as I look at them and this is distressing to me, but I mean, conservative in the sense that like I've come to appreciate some of the basic moral lessons, not in a, in a, like, like, you know, um, there's, cause there's a lot of ways that can get twisted, like to, to be down on people who are different or, uh, you know, um, complex sexualities or anything like that. So this is not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about something much more inclusive and human and real of just ordinary common sense and basic decency and trying to make a positive difference. These are things I'm increasingly more and more a fan of and appreciating both the benefits of and the downsides of not being that way.
1: Okay, that was a nice, a nice piece of uh, <laughs> covering your ass. Well, but it's also
0: true. I didn't want to give any yeah, false impressions no, no, of the fine. way people mis- yeah. might
1: misinterpret these words. Let's see where I where I was going to go with that sentence. I started. I think what you said, in a sense, is part of the misfortune of the fact that the idea of conservative, like I was suggesting, is left within the realm of the political. I think that kind of limits what it can point to in its better manifestation. So the way I think about being conservative, I mean, is mean, not political. It's more about some of the words I've been using throughout the conversation today. What what it means to mature in the mid stages of your life. Yeah what it means to commit to things long term, whether it's a relationship or being a good parent, or caring about a project that you're trying to give birth to, what does it mean to take care of the world around you and try and both nurture and protect what's good in that world, and try and make more of that available for others. There is an inherent conservative quality to that. Sure. Yes. And that's what I'm certainly talking about, and I think it's pretty self-evident that you would not be. Somebody who's suddenly contemplating voting for Trump next time around. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think that's a kind of uh, evident within the fact that we respect our guest, right? In this case, you, but we respect our audience not to reach such a, a poor conclusion based on the use of a, a slightly triggering word for some. Right. I was thinking about midlife crisis, it has an aspect to it, which is that till you get to the midpoint in your life, or what should theoretically be the midpoint, of course, it seems that things are always going to get better, right? Or they can always get better even when they're bad. The thing about the midlife crisis, as as I'm referring to it now, is it's the point in your life where you recognise it's actually not going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> Your body's now in decline. Can it can only get worse. Um, and the end is on its way. But <laughs> well,
0: the, the end is on its way is a guarantee. I would totally agree with you there. Although, yeah. curiously enough, actually, at, at the moment, I'm, I'm 53. Okay. You know, this last year has been one of the best years of my life, I think, in yeah. terms of really feeling like, I feel like I'm doing what I was built to do and getting mm. to do it with an incredible group nice. of people and it's very motivating. So, yeah. so, and yeah, yeah, this body is declining. The signs of it are obvious, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's still got hopefully a, a little bit of, of kick left and, um, <laughs> and, uh, so, but yeah. thank you. This has been really enjoyable.
1: Um, Daniel, thank you for giving up your time. Um, It's always good to talk to you. And uh, I repeat once more, I wish you the very best with this project of yours and keep going. Thank you so much. All right. It's been delightful. That was Daniel Ingram once again on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Stay safe. Bye for now.